Hello everyone, welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers here, and I know it's been a while. It's been probably three to four weeks since I've published an episode and since I've released a newsletter. And I know some of you have been wondering, am I okay? Are we okay? <laughs> What's happening? We're all okay, everything's okay here. Uh, the two explanatory variables for why I've been relatively quiet are that Terry and I have been um, all through June uh, teaching and producing our new online yin yoga and chi cultivation training. And that's now all complete. It's now available as a on-demand course in our continuing ed education um, suite of offerings. And um, I'll be telling you more about it. We'll be having more uh, probably finally focused episodes about what's in that course. Um, but I'll just say now, uh, going into it, I felt like this was going to be one of the best things I've ever taught. And it, it seems to be the case. Uh, and I say that with humility. Um, uh, the, the feedback has been just absolutely fantastic. Uh, the students that took the course with us live through the four, five weeks of, of live sessions that we had um, all reported that they were feeling um, the emphasis on acupressure massage in the yin yoga practice was just awakening their own subtle body sense and and really supporting access really very fast access to uh, pretty sublime states of samadhi um, which again begs the question what what does that have to do with spirituality and what's the role of all that in spirituality i'll be i'll be addressing that those converse, those topics in future episodes um, but given that I haven't dropped a uh, podcast in a while, I wanted to share a episode that I recorded, I don't know, maybe three weeks back. Um, and it was around the time that my niece had just visited, visited me and Terry in Maine. Um, and around that time, it felt like there were a bunch of synchronicities occurring. Um, sort of, I'd read a book and there would be a line there that leapt out at me and spoke to something that was happening somewhere else in my life. Um, not to, not least to say that one of the synchronicities involves, um, I know, a, a good friend of mine um, who emailed me, as you'll hear, a, uh, someone else's tweet, and that, that struck a synchronistic chord with a conversation I had just had with my Irish godson. So there's a, this is kind of an interesting patchwork of reflections that I'm giving, and to my friend Eric Haynes, I hope you get a good laugh. I want to give you a shout out. Thanks for the, the, the sharing all your emails with me, but especially this tweet. Um, and I hope you all enjoy some of these reflections about everyday conundrums and synchronicities. And before I give you today's episode, I just want to say that this episode, as all episodes are, this episode is sponsored by the members of the Riverbird Sangha. If you're a member of our Sangha, you are supporting the work of the podcast. You're supporting directly uh, the teachings that Terry and I get to creatively develop in our in our life together um, and that we get to share with you online. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, if you're interested in practicing with me and Terry, do consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. You get access to all our uh, classes, our four weekly classes. Each week are, are, are stored in a library or an archive of our teaching classes. And you also get, a, in that archive, you get a, a bunch of tutorials and workshops. They, we give you a copy of the Buddhist playbook that Michael Brooks and I co-wrote. Um, there's a lot of uh, tools in that library for your practice, as well as access to us in our live sessions if you're able to make it. So uh, I'll 
leave it there for now. We look forward to practicing with you, and I wish you all the best in your practice. Without further ado, here's today's Dharma Talk replay of Everyday Conundrums and Synchronicities. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, maybe good evening for some of you. Uh, welcome in, good to see you all here. Um, often at the beginning, or what I try to frequently do at the beginning of a talk is give a little update about any housekeeping in the school or in the Sangha, and give a little bit of a word about an update on my uh, seven-year-old niece. Um, and as I think I mentioned last week, uh, my niece was uh, scheduled to visit Terry and me this weekend. Um, and given that that scheduled visitation occurred, it happened, I wanted to uh, extend more of that update into the talk. And uh, I'm doing, bringing that update into the talk in a way that um, is is loosely formed in my head. It's 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 there in my heart. I just don't know exactly how my head will express it <laughs> in a way. And um, maybe one thing I'll just say at the outset. Um, last week I was speaking about, I was sort of riffing on responding to a reflection from one of the members of the Sangha, or a few members about, of, from the Sangha about motherhood and um, a sense of inadequacy that accompanies motherhood um, as a kind of pervasive background or front ground feeling. And on that theme, um, when my niece was here, uh, we gave her the option which she could sleep in a, a guest room that we have. Or Terry said, we can also put a small bed in our bedroom for you. Um, which would you like? And she thought about it for a little while and she said, I think I'd like to sleep in your bedroom. So she joined us um, on the floor. Like we set up a little cot. Terry set up a beautiful little cot for her. Um, and so we had a, a third bean in our bedroom. And uh, sometimes I wake up at one or two for a little bit. And both nights that she was here, I, I, I woke up at one or two and used the toilet and found myself unable to get back to sleep. Um, so I've had a few evenings of very little sleep, um, which hopefully gives you some context for the ramble, the, the, <laughs> the degree of ramble in my, my, my voice. Um, but the context of her visit, uh, just to sort of bring you into it, as you know, or as I shared a, a little bit, she had gone, she's gone through her radiation course uh, for the cancer in her brain, and she's starting a, a new medication now. But the first scan she had post-radiation was uh, a bit hard to interpret by her medical team. And one part of the team said, oh, it's returned, it's progressing. Another part of the team said, no, it's just inflammation. Another part of the team said, it's too early to say. And ultimately, once they all started talking, they said, yep, it is definitely too early to say. We, we, we really don't know. Um, 
But on Thursday, before she was going to come visit, before uh, her stepfather, uh, Mike, was going to bring her up to us. And the reason she was coming up was because Mike, stepdad, uh, was going to try to attend his reunion at a college just up the road from us. So he would be 15 minutes away for this visit. But on Thursday beforehand, um, Adelia wasn't feeling very well. She was nauseous. And um, my sister called and said, we have to take this moment by moment. And, you know, we don't know whether we'll send her up to you. So the next morning on Friday, uh, we launched, Terry and I launched the, the first live session of our new course. And I was teaching that practice and that session and it felt really great to finally get that that next um, session launched in a way but i didn't know throughout the whole time whether i'd get off the call with with the students and check my phone and see that well no adelia won't be coming or or in fact she is turned out she was <laughs> she was feeling well enough to come and I, you know, immediately felt like, okay, we're giving, we're, we're being granted a gift here. We're being granted a real gift. Um, and the, the weekend in general, overall, was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, it was wonderful for me to have time with her, to have time with her and Terry together to see how, um, how much Adelia and Terry bonded, how much, how, how, clear they had a strong affinity and connection in their time and at one point terry asked adelia or i think adelia asked terry what are your what are your three favorite things to do what are your three favorite things to do and terry said i'm not really sure what my top three favorite things to do what are your favorite things to do and adelia said what did she say she said I like to read, I like to play games, and I like to draw. Those are my three favorite things. So that was really, we didn't read so much, but we, we, um, we played a lot of games. Uh, there was a lot of art crafts, a lot of laughs. And um, I, uh, I found myself playing lots of board games, whether it was in, the, in the weather here in Maine, I don't know where it is, what it's like where you are, but we're... We seem to be entering into a long stretch of rain and cold. <clears throat> so that was conducive toward to indoor activities. Um, and as I mentioned elsewhere, uh, one of the games that I've been teaching Adelia is backgammon. Um, it's one of my favorite games. And I think one the more that... I've been playing that with her and the, and Terry and I have been uh, sort of spending a lot of time playing backgammon in our spare time. One of the things I've appreciate, appreciated about that game is how much I can see of the Dharma in the game, how much um, it becomes, a, it's a game of strategy. It's a game of patience. It's a game of uh, knowing when to do the right thing at the right time against um, uncertainty, against uh, randomness. And since Adelia and I have been playing, 
since Christmas, really. That's when I introduced the game to her. Uh, the first concept I was teaching, or trying to teach her, was the concept of what it means to be vulnerable. Because in the game of backgammon, which is a, 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 in many ways like a, a glorified game of checkers, but with dice and a slightly different orientation of the board. Um, in the context of this game, if your checker is a single checker on a slot, meaning it's there's there's no other checker stacked on top of it, so there's only one checker on a slot, that one checker position is vulnerable to your opponent being able to bonk you. That's the, the, the technical term that Adelia uses. So if I left a piece uh, vulnerable, she could, if she got the right roll of the dice, she could move her checker to hit me, hit my checker and put my checker onto the the bar, which means my checker is out of play and I can't do anything in the game until I get that checker back into play. So I don't really want to go into the backgammon details of rules and, and logistics, but the concept of vulnerability and, and getting her to understand that um, first, you want to be careful about leaving checkers uncovered. So you want to be careful about leaving single checkers left alone. And she really seems to get it. She's, you know, um, over and over again in games, she'll say, I don't want to leave. I don't want to make myself vulnerable. I don't want to be vulnerable. And of course, that's the first level in a way of learning to play of just getting a sense of what is the the the, the what are the conditions of vulnerability and what are the danger points of being vulnerable you're you're open to being hit but the next level of the game is knowing when it's strategically beneficial or important to be vulnerable to take a risk to advance and so there's times and contexts where it's good to be a little bit loose a little bit even aggressive a little bit forward in the in the strategy in times where it's better to play it more conservatively more safely not open yourself up to vulnerability and in our games this weekend she kept coming up with a question well, what should i do here so there would be maybe a, a, a scenario in the game board where it wasn't clear, it wasn't immediately obvious what the next best decision, next best move or decision would be. There were sometimes two equally good decisions, and there are sometimes two or more equally not so good decisions. And she was really, I could see she was wrestling with what should I do? And she kept saying, what should I do here? So being the uncle that I am, I said, well, this, what you're experiencing now is a conundrum. <laughs> you're experiencing a conundrum. I wrote down the definition of conundrum somewhere. And I, did I, oh, here it is. A confusing and difficult problem or question. That's a conundrum. But the way I was using it, <clears throat> is a confusing situation where we don't know what to do. We don't have a clear sense of what to do. And I remembered um, an older father-like figure to me who once said something like, a decision 
is making a choice in the face of not having all the information. When we make a decision, we make a choice when we, where we don't have all the information. And his point was that if we had all the information, it wouldn't be a decision anymore. We just know what to do. But in these more open-ended, ambiguous situations, um, we, you have to sometimes choose something and, and we don't know the, all the, the conditions of the choice. We don't know the potential outcomes of the choice. Um, and that's a kind, its own kind of vulnerability. So that was the theme of our game play, learning to recognize conundrums, learning how to open to the difficulty, the, the, the discomfort of choosing in the face of not having all the information. And then, so that was one piece. And, and this is, this talk is really just me putting a, a few pieces of the weekend out kind of in our collective space of, of reflection. And um, I'm hoping that you'll be able to hear some of the Dharma in these, in these pieces, these little vignettes. But another vignette was our mealtimes. And um, she's on a special diet now. And Terry, uh, I have to... In, in so many ways, I can't thank Terry enough for how wonderful uh, her her real experience and skills as a mother were on evidence in how effortlessly she seemed to get food prepared. And while I was playing games with Adelia and getting Adelia to take her medicine without too much protest. But the three of us would would sit at the table and um, the way our, our, our table is positioned in our sort of uh, hearth area um, is that the table faces a wall on which uh, a piece of art that I picked up in India is framed. And this art is a, an embroidered piece of folk art that represents or shows the image of the Indian god Ganesh or Gunpati. And Adelia would stare at it for a while. Um, and then she started to ask about it. What's this elephant? And why is there, why are there, what are those animals at the, at the elephant elephant's feet? And what are the animals sort of in the corners of the, of the, um, the piece of art? So she had these questions, which, brought me to a conundrum <laughs> how do i how do i communicate um the symbolism of ganesh to a seven-year-old and i um started to you know i i took a few routes in a, a few roads in we had personally um one of the things i like to play with is is accents and um we had been playing with different accents in some of our joking conversations and i said you know just as 
English can be spoken with different accents. I tried to say that different cultures, different parts of the world and different cultures have different conceptions of what God is. And I said, do you know what God is? She said, no. <laughs> no idea. God wasn't a word she knew. I said, well, don't you have friends that are Christian? Thinking back to what it was like growing up in a very Christian culture. I said, don't you have friends that are Christian? No, I don't, I don't know anyone that's, what's a Christian? I thought, okay, I'm really going to have to dig back here. Like, how do I get into this? And at the first, that first dinner, uh, that first conversation around it, I, I was really at a loss. And I said, let me think about this more. And um, so I did a little research and tried to look up Ganesh and get a sense of refreshing my own memory around the symbolism of this deity in, in Hinduism. And one of the attributes of Ganesh is that Ganesh is the, quote, the remover of obstacles. So the Indians that I've known that have statues of Ganesh or pictures or paintings of Ganesh, um, they'll speak to how they, they pray to this, this form to remove obstacles in the path of life. And the one of the things I read was saying how when an elephant goes through a forest, when an elephant walks through a forest, it clears, you know, knocks over a lot of trees and bushes and, and really clears a path so that other animals can move through that or along that path. And I realized, well, that's, that's maybe the best story piece that might explain kind of what this symbol means. So that was a that was a theme of our time is just explaining symbols and Adelia was um, every now and then uh, she would point to something on our walls and and point out some of we have a lot of Asian art um, up uh, I'd say a good half of the Asian art is art that I've inherited from my mother's parents my grandparents who had traveled to Asia and. When I remember when I was a small boy in their house looking at lion statues from China or Chinese prints, I would stare at them and just be kind of mesmerized by their forms, not understanding what they meant, but knowing, just having this sort of direct sense that something was being represented that I couldn't quite understand. So she looked at uh, charcoal prints we have of um, the Ramayana, which is another Hindu epic or Hindu story, um, asking what those were. Um, but there's a lot of, what I'm getting to is there was a lot of question about images and what, what these things meant. And that, that was all spinning around in the first day of her visit. And that night, when we brought her to bed, um, well, I should add that Terry's youngest son was in a playoff baseball game down in Florida that night. So Terry, Terry didn't come to bed with us. She she stayed back to to keep watching her son's game. So I got to take Adelia to bed. We put her in her little, tucked her into her cot, and then I took myself to bed and 
did what I do is just try to read myself to sleep. <clears throat> and the thing I was reading was um, a, it's called the, the Portable Poe. I've mentioned this before that I've been dipping my, my mind back into the stories of Edgar Allan Poe, just feeling drawn to that for some reason. And I just learned, this, this surprised me, but I just learned in the book that Poe is credited as being the inventor of detective fiction, the de detective fiction genre. Um, and I don't know if you ever enjoy detective fiction or watching detective fiction, but detective fiction, I would say in the last 15 years has been one of my favorite pastimes. I really enjoy detective stories. Um, if I trace the interest of detective fiction, I think it it goes back to actually a, a conversation, an interview that I had with Joseph Goldstein, the founder of the Insight Med, one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society. I, I when I interviewed Joseph, I said, Joseph, in your spare time, when you're not teaching or practicing the Dharma, what do you enjoy doing? And he said, Can I mention spy books? Can I mention spy books? And it was one of those things that, you know, I thought a perfectly, a perfect meditation Dharma practitioner, it, I wouldn't expect them to say, oh, I really enjoy spy books. But in his example, and talking to other people, you know, it, it was a reminder to me that the Dharma doesn't need to cut things out of our life. That if you understand the Dharma, the Dharma can be seen and understood and gleaned in anything. So that's just to say, um, here I am in bed reading Edgar Allan Poe, and I, I wanted to start the first of the three stories that are credited as being the, the, the initial canon of detective fiction. And in the first paragraph of this first story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, my eyes landed on this sentence, which stood the hair in the back of my spine up. The quotation is this, he is fond of enigmas, of conundrums, of hieroglyphics, exhibiting in his solutions of each a degree of acumen which appears to the ordinary apprehension preternatural. Enigmas, conundrums, hieroglyphics. He was fond of these. And there, <laughs> the whole day of playing games and talking about conundrums, enigmas, symbols, cultural symbols or hieroglyphics. And I realized, yes, I'm fond of those too. <laughs> I'm fond of those too. And that, to me, was a small example of experiences that happen seem to happen actually some with some degree of frequency of what jung referred to as synchronicities where seemingly disconnected events and disconnected by causal relationships meaning they don't they don't seem to be connected so much in 
direct uh, direct a direct relationship of cause and effect, but they're they're arising together in a similar time has a deep sense of meaning to the the person who experiences them. And in spending time with Adelia and playing these games with her and talking about some of these concepts and talking about Ganesh, to then see these these three dynamics of particularly of conundrum and, and hieroglyphics or symbol coming together, it just it, it really grabbed me like, okay, something, what's here? Why what is this about? What am I trying to do here? So that was sort of the, the real tone of the weekend. There's a lot of laughing, a lot of dancing, a lot of playing and giggling. All in the context of a young girl struggling for her life. And part of the games we played were games that would incentivize her to drink more fluids because she wasn't, didn't really feel like she wanted to drink much. Um, and again, I wanted to say it, it really, uh, I'd say that it all went as, as beautifully as it could. And because of the rain, we didn't really get to go outside that much, but a few times we did take a walk on the driveway, which brought us by the little pond. And I could talk to her about the, the geese outside, um, expecting the baby geese, the goslings to arrive. And I kept saying, I really hope... I hope the goslings come while you're here. And on Sunday morning, um, Adelia's stepdad, Mike, came over around 8 a.m. And we spent about three hours all together playing more games. And uh, around 11.30, they finally made their way south again. We fa said farewe our farewells and final hugs and... Um, they went, they made their way south and the, the goslings to my knowledge hadn't arrived but just after they left um i had also scheduled a call with one of my irish godsons who's now 17 years old he's he lives in uh, cork ireland and i've known him as since he was five really and it's another small part point, but Adelia reminds me so much of Will when he was five. Just this exuberant curiosity and exuberant engagement. Um, so I was really happy to get on get on this call with Will. And um, while I was I was the call was on WhatsApp, so I was using the WhatsApp app to, to to chat with will and while i was there i got a, a text from terry saying the goslings arrived because she'd gone out to do an errand <laughs> so the, the timing of the goslings was a little bit off but in speaking to will um who's an, another extremely important person to me um i was asking him i hadn't talked to him for a good few months but I was asking him what, what he's really into now. And he, he had just finished his, what would be his junior year in high school, his fifth year. So he has one more year before university. And um, he, 
it was a bit dis, dis, discombobulating for me because I hadn't seen him in a few, in again, probably half a year. And my God, he had grown up so much. You know, he went from being a little boy to being a young man. And, you know, his haircut was different. He was, you could tell he had been to the gym. He was bigger, thicker, stronger, and his voice was deeper. And his ability to articulate his thoughts was even more impressive than I remember. And so we got to talking and he shared how much he'd really been getting into his music and playing music. And he's a, his dad's a guitarist and he'd been playing guitar. So I, I, he was raised by a, you know, a very sharp and wise musical ear and had that legacy already in him. So when he, when I asked him, I said, well, if you could, like, what do you want to do with your music? What would you want to do? And he said, well, I'm, I'm really not sure because I don't really want the life of a musician. I want to have a family. I want to have kids at some point. So I, I heard his conundrum around what is a, what is a musician or what is someone who really loves music? How do they find their way through life? And that's something I wrestled with myself at, at that age. And I said, well, put aside pra practical things for the moment. Like, put, put aside, you know, how you're going to support yourself and put aside what it would mean to have a family and be a musician. Just put all that aside for now. And let me just ask you, there's, I, I hear in the way you're talking, Will, about your music, that there's a real passion you have, a real spirit of your heart's passion is, is being pulled and, and, and channeled towards this, this form. Um, if you could wave your magic wand and become any musician you want, any magical dream-like musician you would want, who would you want to be? Who would you want to sound like? Who would you want to be? And he said, oh, well, that's easy. On guitar, I'd sound like David Gilmour, a guitarist from Pink Floyd, if I'm getting the name right. And if I could sound like any singer, I'd sound like Jeff Buckley. And I don't, I'm not particularly familiar with, I know of both of those musicians and I'm, I could recognize some of their work. Um, but he said, he, this is how he quantified it. He said, I've had Spotify since 2018. So for five years, he said Spotify. He said, and I've only been listening to Pink Floyd and Jeff Buckley for the last two or three months. But already Pink Floyd and Jeff Buckley are the most listened to uh, artists on my Spotify list. So it's like what he's saying is that in the last two months, he's listened to more Pink Floyd and Jeff Buckley than he's listened to any other music on Spotify. And then he shared that in the last few months, he's started practicing his guitar six hours a day. And now I really started to pick up because I know what that's like too when the passion for something grabs you and suddenly you're pouring your heart into it. And he shared a, a funny story that he said, he, he heard of the story from Eric Clapton, that Eric Clapton at one point locked himself into a room and barricaded the door with bookcases and furniture so that he couldn't get out and there was no TV and no, no radio 
just him and his guitar and his and his stereo maybe and the way will put it he said clapton wouldn't leave the room until he had gotten done what he needed to do and and will's uh, kind of identifying with that so putting himself into a practice space getting done what needed to be done but when he mentioned jeff buckley i um i asked him i said do you also listen to leonard cohen because the only jeff buckley quote song that i could think of off the top of my head was jeff buckley's cover of leonard cohen's song hallelujah and he said to me no actually i haven't listened to leonard cohen i said oh you should you know he he was the one that wrote hallelujah he said oh i didn't know that thanks for letting me know small piece small piece after i got off the call with will um i checked my email and a close and relatively new friend of mine eric um, had emailed me and in his email was a screenshot of an exchange he had with somebody on twitter the person he had the exchange with i won't say his full his name just to not to get too much into the the ditch <laughs> uh but the exchange he had with twitter went something like this the person had posted a quotation and the quotation was quote love is not a victory march it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah the line from the song hallelujah but the quotation in the Twitter in the tweet from this person was attributed to Jeff Buckley. My friend in the Twitter feed said, Hey, that's not Jeff Buckley. That's Leonard Cohen. Get your attribution. Correct. He didn't say that those words, but that's what he's implying. Get your attribution. Correct. And then the original person who tweeted the quote incorrectly said, thanks for the context. Jeff Buckley also said it. So, and this is the final line of his response. So, comma, you know. And then he had an emoji of a fist with one finger extended and it wasn't the thumb and it wasn't the index finger and it wasn't the ring finger and it wasn't the pinky finger. Now the person that originally tweeted this is a Buddhist teacher has uh, really developed quite a, an online platform in the Buddhist space. I knew about him from years ago because when I was uh, collaborating with my late friend Michael Brooks on a mindfulness-based consultancy, Joseph Goldstein suggested, oh, you should connect with so-and-so. He might be interested in having you on his podcast. So this, this guy who tweeted was the guy. And um, my friend Michael had reached out to him and he rejected us. He said, I'm not really interested in bringing anything about behavioral economics to my podcast. 
which is what we were interested in bringing behavioral economics and Dharma together. But anyway, I was able to um, share with the friend who emailed me this little exchange how much Michael Brooks didn't really care for this guy. And I said, his exchange with you shows what, uh, what kind of a Philistine he is. Someone indifferent to art and culture. To be kind of, in a way, blunt with that, or crude with that kind of quotation. So this is another, uh, just, I'm trying to give you little bits of glimpses of synchronicities. From this, just this last weekend. And it, the synchronicity in a way, where did I write it down? More broadly touches back into the poem that I ended class last week or session last week with. And I'm not going to quote the whole poem, but just a little bit. If we hear Leonard Cohen's line in, his in that beautiful song, Hallelujah, which when Adelia left, I can't imagine a more perfect song to poetically capture feelings that are very hard to name. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. From David White last week in his poem, Self-Portrait, just one, one line. I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequences of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. That is, and I just wrote under it, that is a cold hallelujah. So I'm trying to share my, what I'm holding as a consequence of love. And the, the pain of, that comes with the bitterness of unwanted passion when it's defeated. And, and I'm trying to speak to that in the context, the broader context of, of a spirituality that is able to hold, that is able to hold contradictions, conundrums, enigmas, imperfections. How could a Buddhist teacher tweet something like that? I'm not on Twitter because I know I could. <laughs> My mind said, don't go there. <laughs> I can't go there anymore. 
And I know the Dharma with its language and jargon can sometimes seem like hieroglyphics. We might feel like we're looking at a painting of Ganesh like my niece did and just interested but not sure what it means. But what I'm discovering in our space, and I'm bringing you all in to the circle now, you're, you're already there, but um, what I'm learning in the space, particularly through how we share in the discussions we have, that the cold hallelujah that we can share together truly is one of the most meaningful um, not just meaningful it's there's something about the exchange in which meaning is getting made that the meaning i i see in my life that i'm ch trying to channel my life energy towards is being forged in the shared conversations the shared experiences of pain bitter unwanted passion how we hold that and how we continue to walk down the road seeing goslings when they're there new life going on So I'm going to pause my reflections there, the unfinished talk as they are, as it were, and invite you to sit with your weekend, any themes of your life that may resonate with some of what I shared, or just themes that come that are associated from are associated with things that I'm saying. Because I, 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 maybe the final thing I'll close with is that is is back to the theme of synchronicity, in that I often find the shares and the conversations we have are very much part of, like opening a book and seeing a sentence leap out with a crack of lightning. That in your shares in our collective, our, our shared conversation. Themes, meaning, flash with new growth, new ideas, new ways of holding, new ways of loving. So thank you for your attention this morning. Um, thank you for that extended update as much of a patchwork update as it was. I hope that the collage presentation is able to tap into some of your life. And we'll now sit together for, for a period of time. Okay, thanks so much for listening to today. And I hope as always that the reflections offer avenues of exploration for you 
fresh avenues of exploration for you and your practice. If you'd like support, further support, more support, uh, community, if you'd like to take your practice and open up some fresh questions in your practice, do consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. We're kind of an open collective of teachers and practitioners who have found value in yin yoga, qigong, and meditation. And what Terry and I do is we try to bring our collective experience of really 50 plus years of experience or even close to 60 years of experience of combined um, training and work in the fields of embodiment, physical exercise, yoga, qigong, uh, acupuncture, energetics, and and Buddhist awareness meditation, and bring these all together in an integral practice that's uh, accessible, low-key, but ultimately transformative for those that engage with it. So uh, if you're interested in any of that, check us out, the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. And uh, stay tuned. There's more episodes coming. I'll be back on my normal publication track, giving or publishing about one or two episodes a week. And I have some really good conversations I'm looking forward to um, releasing soon. So stay tuned and uh, look for those synchronicities and conundrums and enigmas in your own life and stay strong. I wish you all my best. Keep practicing and I'll see you in the next episode. All my best.